It is Tuesday, January 15th, 2019, 7.15 p.m. My name is Cameron Wolf. We are meeting in Hannah's office as a part of the New York City Trans Oral History Project. Hannah, could you introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, my name is uh, Hannah Soldner. Um, I don't really know what else to say. This is my office in Midtown. Um, yeah. Um, if you could share um, uh, uh, pronouns or um, also just a little bit about how you identify as far as gender. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> uh, gender is complicated. I use she, her, her pronouns. Um, she, her, hers. Um, and, um, identify, hmm, I think I like the idea, the term of, like, a woman of transgender experience. Um, I feel like, um, as opposed to, like, trans women, like, I feel like that, um, oftentimes I find that people use that to set, to separate me from those people who are cis um and um i find that that's um yeah an odd position um i do also like the idea of femme though because i feel like um it's almost the opposite in like a certain way like the term like a woman of transgender experience because that links me with other women but i like the idea of femme because it links me with people of many gender expressions as well as like i mean even up to it, including not that this should be a binary, but it's it's one that people think, but like, you know, like femme, like men, men-identified people. It doesn't have to be just women. So I feel like those are both identities that I hold. Um, I don't know if you asked outside of gender identities, but I also feel like it's important to talk about race. I might. Um, and I feel like that uh, is something that really impacts the way we experience gender. Yeah. I'm white woman of trans experience. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. I know it's such a loaded, um, a loaded question, but it's nice for folks who might be listening to have kind of a preliminary sense of who who you're, we're talking with. Yeah. Um, so as a way to kind of ease into um, to the conversation, I was hoping you might share um, your earliest an early memory from childhood. It doesn't have to be anything in particular. It doesn't have to be related to gender. It's interesting. My, you said earliest first, my earliest memory, and it's more like a picture than like what I expect a memory to be, like a more like a video. But I remember like my mom carrying me um, on her shoulder. I have no idea. I must have been really young. Um, and we're going up a flight of stairs and the carpet is blue. Um, and like we're walking up the stairs, downstairs, we're in a house, downstairs is a, um, wash, like a washing machine is going, I can hear it, and she has like longer hair than she had most of my childhood and to this day, um, and I just remember like the, the house that I live in, that I live in now, the house that I first sort of have like vivid memories of, um, we moved into when I was a year and a half old, so this must have been before that age, which is like wild young. Um, so, but it's, yeah, it's just like a flashbulb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, um, where was that house? It's in Fort Collins, Colorado. I don't remember, I would have to call and ask. I think 
it was on a street called Ridgewood. Um, and it's just like something, you know, it's not something I have like lots of memories of, just like as my older siblings or my parents would talk about it. But yeah, I don't totally remember. But it's in Fort Collins. <laughs> um, did you, and then you said you moved when you were... We did. We moved, um, I think very briefly, we lived... Um, it's odd to kind of try and conjure up memories of things I don't remember. <laughs> Something that my family has told me. But I think we lived like in a like a rental or a trailer, like really briefly, while the house that we were going to move into, there was sort of a gap between when we moved out and when the other people moved out. Um, so I moved to Loveland, Colorado, which is next door, same county. Um, more of a... Fort Collins um, has a college, and it's... Um, you know, more like 120,000 people. Loveland, Loveland's growing quite a bit. When I was young, it was probably 30, maybe even in the 20s. Um, 30,000? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lots of retired people um, and kind of a, it's a passageway to Fort Collins and to Estes Park, which is a mountain town that's very beautiful in Colorado. Um, but yeah, sort of, I think there's a lot of... Um, Ways in which particularly people from Fort Collins just sort of consider it almost like vestigial. Mm. Um, it's getting, it's, it's shifting now, but like, um, yeah. So it was something where you could, you would travel to Fort Collins if you wanted to do, um, you know, go to a mall or go to an interesting restaurant or, or whatever. It's definitely changing now. So, yeah. And then is, is Loveland kind of where you spent most of your childhood, or did you keep I, on moving? No, there? no. I was there until um, I went to college, which is after. So I went to the community college, and I stayed uh, with my mom and then later with my brother. So I went off to university when I was um, maybe like 21 or 22. Um, and I moved, that was in Boulder, Colorado, which is, um, about 50 miles southwest of Loveland. Um, sort of, yeah. Um, yeah, so really close. And I lived there while I went to college and I graduated college when I was it took some time because I um, studied abroad, so it took some time to like figure out my credits. But I ended up leaving college. I graduated at 26, left at 27, and moved here to New York in 2012, and I've been here since. Yeah. Does um, you mention that you have some some older siblings? I do. I have three older brothers, um, and uh, they're they're pretty significantly older than me. One is my closest in age. One is eight years older and then 12 years, and then 15 years. Um, two of them live in Loveland. My, uh, my one brother uh, lives at home with my mom, um, and my other brother lives not that far away. Actually, they, they all sort of live very close, except for my youngest brother, who lives in Columbia, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he has um, three kids who are two have graduated from high school, or about two, and one's... And in sort of the beginning of high school. And then my older brother has um, three kids in their mid to late 20s and then one who's eight. So <laughs> I guess sort of taking after my parents with a very 
sort of spread out. Uh, so you were the baby of the family? I was, yeah. Even though I'm the biggest, I'm the tallest. <laughs> so. What was that? Um, what was that like? Um, I think that it was a good experience. It was um, as a as a kid, I um, often got like teased a lot, and um, I was overweight, and I probably was femme. It's just not something I thought about. Um, and uh, but my siblings were always like. Like, there was no chance of, like, a, you know, like, a bully could be, like, one year older, but, like, you know, a sibling could be, like, 15 years older. So it's, like, you know, like, maybe if I was six and my bully was seven, but my brother was, you know, 21, like, they always had my back. Um, but they were also, it was kind of odd, though, in that, like, um, my friends were, like, sometimes aware that I had siblings, but they just, like, weren't there because they, like grew up and they like lived in other cities and you know other people their siblings were close and they also um i have a nephew who's close my nephew and two oldest nieces are closer in age to me than any of my brothers and i think that um it was hard for kids to wrap their heads around so they would always be like this is your cousin and i'd be like no they're not um and so um but it was nice i do find as an adult who's um about to enter her mid-30s like uh, my sibling, like my brother still calls me, like one of my brothers still calls me like baby. Like when I like, Oh, like your baby kid, like baby girl is on the phone. Like when I call my mom, um, like I'm 30, I'm bigger than you. Um, and my oldest brother, like kind of also, I feel just has this sense of like that you're not grown yet. So, so those kind of family dynamics of, of being viewed as, like, the baby or the youngest still kind of persist, even though y'all are yeah. a full adult age and living your full adult yeah. lives. Sounds like it's affectionate, though. Yeah. Um, it is a little... I think there's a little bit of frustration in, like, pay attention to me. Like, I'm really smart. I know about stuff. Um, but, yeah. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, it can be hard to transcend or kind of grow with family members. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's also like there's a very just sort of like a vast difference in that like my siblings are cishet men who like two of them like had kids and like you know um, went basically immediately into the workforce and like you know either live at home or like with their family and I just like moved to the big city and, you know, went to college, then I moved to the big city and, like, don't have, like, a family, as it were, and, like, I'm queer, and, like, I'm, yeah, just, like, my different, um, I just have a lot of, like, different places in which I put my energy that I think than they do, so I feel like that also f- maybe adds to a disconnect, yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, you mentioned being young that you were probably femme back then but that you didn't know it or didn't realize it what um what were your gendered experiences and and, um and your racialized racial experiences or class experiences if those feel relevant to you as a kind of growing up in Loveland sure um I mean I feel like um 
it's interesting. I feel like it's hard at this this period to not um, sort of allow my current life to color a lot of that. And um, I don't. I feel like I don't have as vid, vivid memories of my childhood as like a lot of people think. But I do remember like. Um, I remember, like, in elementary school, like, one time I was, like, wearing, a, like, a sweatshirt. And it was, like, a black, like, very basic sweatshirt. Um, and I discovered that it was, like, a Hanes Herway sweatshirt. And I was, like, scandalized. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I don't know if that was, I mean, who knows if that's just being around male culture or fearing that I would be read before I even knew who I was or just whatever. Um I I remember like a lot of prayer of like like what if I like God like what if I woke up female like would that be so bad like that would be great I think I would be happier let me at least try it um I remember that a lot in my youth and I remember particularly there was a time in maybe my early teens where it suddenly became um I became cognizant of the fact that these tendencies to like desire to be female were like not acceptable and that I should like not let people know that I feel those things. But I mean, apart from that, I remember one of my best friends, him telling me like, and we went back to preschool. I remember him telling me like, you used to always like want to like hold my hand. And I thought that was weird. And I was like, I don't remember that. But like, um, that kind of, I had violated some sort of male, male, quote-unquote male-male, like, social contract, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, class privileges, my uh, my family, um, my parents divorced when I was 10. Um, and my um, mom has a lot of chronic health issues, and so I spent a lot of time, like, uh, we owned our own house, which, like, really, that ability to own property is huge like she was able to you know her house payments i'm sure were way less than rent could have been so in that sense like had a a much nicer house than even some of my friends whose parents like worked and were together but um i was on like free school lunches and i was on free government health care and um and like you know um food assistance and stuff like that um and um but it's kind of it's interesting there's a um that ability to be um sort of raised in a middle class mindset my older siblings were all in sort of like a solidly middle class world um apart from like this sort of vague awareness of like you know why has everyone been to disneyland and i haven't why do people go on vacations and i don't um I feel like there's a lot of um, a lot of the sort of things that you learn how to be middle cl- when you're middle class, particularly navigating the kind of systems that that um, uh, America has in place. Like, is was a lot easier, um, and like uh, you know, um, educational assistance and things like that. Um, and my mom had done, one of my older brothers is disabled, and she'd done a lot of resistance about special education and things like that. And so she was able to fight back a lot about school, like, programs that they had to provide. Um, I think that 
um, racially, I feel like I wasn't, um, race was like not a thing I was, uh, really cognizant of when I was younger. Um, Loveland is a very white town. It's 92.5% white or something really white, um, including white, uh, Latinx identified people. Um, and I think that, um, anything that would sort of be, uh, evidenced particularly of like white supremacy, like now living in New York and like friends I know, like I realize like how, um, I can see like how much more clearly like white supremacy works. Like, um, it was not as clear when, um, there was only, you know, like in my high school, there was like five, four black children. And so like, um, if it was, uh, if there was heavier policing or, um, heavier punishment and the things we see like that, um, it was much easier to see it as like just individual people and you couldn't see like the whole systems that were like working together. Um, but I had a sense, um, this isn't necessarily racialized, but I had this sense of how homogenous like everything was. And I think part of this involves being like a queer person, but just this idea of like everyone is homogenous. And even though they're like me, like I don't, there's something different about me and I don't want to be part of the homogeneity. Um, and this sort of like everything's, everybody's the same as me and yet I'm different from them all was sort of this weird kind of feeling. Um, yeah. That um, now in um, a space like New York, like, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's, um, maybe there was the, the, it almost feels like the, the things that were sort of part of, like, enculturated into me, maybe for lack of a better word, were the things that were the same as everyone else. And then the things that were kind of, um, my sort of independentness was sort of different. And in that sense, like, um, in a place like New York where there's, um, a lot of different people with different life experiences. Um, the pieces that are, um, I don't really know how to explain this, but like, um, uh, the pieces of me that I really embrace are things that I can find parallels in. Um, I think I, I think I understand um, the kind of, like you were saying in Loveland, the things that, the ways in which you fit into the white, middle class, um, kind of cultural norms in Loveland or the or things that you maybe didn't reflect on as much or didn't have an awareness of being um, uh, identifiers or like having a reality in, in the world. And it was things like gender or things like queerness that because they differed, even if you didn't have, like differed from that Loveland norm, that um, those are the kinds of things that you were more aware of before getting to New York 
where all of a sudden there's like tons of difference. There's tons of people coming from all different um, walks of life, and that being in being in New York City enabled you to kind of reflect on some of those uh, racial and cultural norms in Loveland. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like um, it's it's actually interesting because there's like. Um, so like, for instance, like I, I have a pretty like robust faith life that's now more in a sense, more robust in a world where not everyone I know is shares a faith with me, though. A lot of people do. First of all, it's, you know, New York is a very religious city and also you tend to meet people who are like you, but whereas back home, it was sort of just the assumption. Like if you didn't. Um, if you weren't Christian, particularly Protestant Christian, like that was just like, um, it was kind of odd. Um, and not, um, well, I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah. So as like, in that sense, like this, um, like this is an identity that I've dug into because it's important to me even in the face of not everybody holding that identity. Whereas like queerness, like I dug into it because like when I realized I was trans at 17, like I had never met another queer person. I vaguely had a sense of like that there was queer people out there. Um, And upon like realizing like, oh, this is who I am. um, I had to do all this sort of like self-reflection. Whereas like, because I lived in a, I don't know what the term is I'm trying to think of, um, because everyone around me sort of had a similar faith, um, or many of them, uh, um, it was just something that was unexamined, other than the fact that I had this sense that the way I practiced it was not the way other people practiced it. And so it wasn't something that I examined as much as it's been with me forever. Excuse me, I didn't have to examine it until, um, yeah, until there was a period later where I was like, oh, maybe you should think about this thing. Mm. It being your, your faith practices, right? Yeah. yeah, and it's odd because, like, I didn't, or I guess it's not odd, but, like, I feel like there's a lot of insinuation in queer religious spaces that there would have been some time that I would have wrestled with it, and it, that's not what happened. I didn't wrestle with it, but I, um, um, but I did sort of like, I feel like there was a point in time in where it was just like, I am religious and I'm just going to ignore anything that's difficult about that maybe. And then now there's like a, what does that actually mean? So um, in that sense, like um, it was better for me to move around away from people who were more similar to me. So... Um, can you get a um, kind of paint a picture for us about what being um, what being Christian in Loveland growing up looked like? So what the what the expectations were, what the religious education was like, what um, what kind of rituals or practices your family did or your friends did. Um, yeah, so I mean, I feel like... Um, what, even like what the theology or the beliefs kind of inherent in, in, in those spaces were. Um, 
there's a lot of um hmm um i found that it was more of like an unexamined identity you know i grew up and this is you know this is the church your mom went to and it's the church her mom went to and that's where you go um and i remember like um not necessarily a lot of um deep education though i do remember like there was one year like i really liked vacation bible school i remember there was like one year that i went to like seven of them which is odd because usually they're like always in the same week um but it was just like which of my friends like have a vbs like i'm gonna go and like vacation bible school yeah, that happened that a, in the summer it is is that a thing here um i've never heard of that so it's basically oh my goodness so it's like um they're different i think most of the time they're a week um and you go and it's kind of like a week-long summer camp where you learn about um about christianity and so you go through like sort of um like sort of famous stories and like um and they get sort of like told to you in like a very like child-friendly way and i remember like I really strongly remember like going to my friend's church that was Baptist and we were like sitting in a basement learning about um, David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath. And uh, the guy who was leading it um, was like sort of reading, like telling us the story and like, and like trying to like get us really excited. And he had a keychain, and like, he was talking about like, he had the key and like the key was like, I think like devotion to God or love of God or whatever. And so he like knew he was pretending to be David. He was like, I know it's going to be like safe. Like when I go to like face Goliath. And then he mentioned offhand, um, his keychain had a, had a super soaker on it, which were like so big in the nineties. And he was like, and if the key doesn't work, like I also have a gun. So like that'll like keep me safe. Um, and then I remember like another, vacation bible school where we were like divided into different groups like reflecting the 12 tribes of israel and we each had our own little like tent that we lived in and um we sort of um learned like how a dreidel works and we learned how to make um what is that there's a name it's like a brick that uses like clay and straw um we, i like Later took a class in sustainable design in college, and they told me what it is, but now I don't remember. Um, but, um, yeah, so we sort of, like, it was kind of like a mix of vaguely old-timey or maybe first-century, like, Palestinian technology, plus uh, a very sort of, like, skinny overview of, like, Judaism in that time as, yeah. Um and so, but I don't, I mean, I think that it was, it was mostly, which I mean, I guess would make sense with like the education of kids. It's like, you know, things that are exciting and sort of really simple concepts and stuff like that. Um, and things that are easy to um, take in. I don't think I ever, um, like a lot of the like really scary, like conservative -y, um things like i don't think i was ever like berated and told like to fear my sexuality or um i mean i think that there was some like 
you know, the insinuation that I should, like, wait for marriage to have sex the first time. But I think, like, and then, like, a couple of my friends are like, oh, like, we're going to avoid, like, masturbating because, like, that's what we think God wants. But I think even by that time, I was like, I don't know about that. Um, and so, um, but, um, yeah, I went to a, a disciples church, which is a... Um, if you go to like basically any city and they have a church called First Christian Church, it's a disciples church. Um, and um, I remember we did like little like communion was like little pellets and then like a faux gold tray with little glass sips of I don't remember if it was wine or juice. And we went there until I was about ten. My brother and his best friend were baptized when they were twelve or thirteen, so I'd have been probably five. Um, but when my parents got divorced, we stopped going. Um, and then I didn't go to church for a while. And then that same brother, this was my youngest brother, um, he started going to this church again at some point. And so I started following him there because I wanted to be cool like him um, when I was in high school. And I went there for a couple of years. Um, and um, then some stuff went down that I really disagreed with, and then I went, didn't go to church for a while. Um, and then I started back up just going to a, like a Bible study or like a youth gathering-y thing. Um, and then I just started going again in college, and I've gone since. Um, but I feel like there was a lot of... Uh, and I mean, like, even then, I, like, wasn't really all that, like, plugged in. Like, the high school group, I basically just, like, I would go there, and then, like, my friends and, like, the girls we liked would sort of, like, run off into a field nearby and, like, make out or more. Um, uh, sorry if anybody listens to this. <laughs> they, did, they did worse. <laughs> Don't fear your sexuality, y'all. But they did more than I did, um, for what it's worth. Um, what do you think? I'm, I'm kind of curious and, and struck by um, something you said earlier, too, about unlike so many uh, queer and trans people who, um, who have a lot of religious and spiritual trauma because of um, transphobic and homophobic messages they receive that you said that that's not your experience, that um, you didn't kind of have that, and even kind of what you said describing your childhood religious life of being like, well, I don't know if God really doesn't want me to masturbate. Like, that sounds kind of fishy <laughs> to me. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, what do you think enabled you to have that personalized and personal relationship with God? Um, I think that, so I think that there's a couple different things. I think one, um, there are many trans people whom identify, um, as a queer sexuality before a queer gender. And I did not. So I feel like that's easier to pinpoint. Like if there had been other guys I was like clearly interested in, then maybe my parents would have been like, oh, what are you doing? Um, and all of those things. Um, and I think I, there was just a part of me that was, and people asked me, I think that that's why I said, like, I think people probably read me as femme because I got asked all the time, like in high school and stuff like, are you gay? Are you into other guys? And even um, in college and beyond. Um, 
and I just remember this. Um, I do identify as bisexual now for what it's worth, but um, there was just this period of like, I don't, I don't know. Cause it's like, I've, I've, I've tended to be attracted to women. Um, and so I don't need to explore beyond that. But like, if I find myself attracted to somebody who's not female um, or woman, uh, that I'll just cross that bridge when it comes. Um, and, um, I, uh, yeah. And I think that probably because of that, like that was self-satisfying enough to get me sort of, uh, filtered into the, like, the straight box. Um, and so, um, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like, um, maybe there was some sort of, like I internalized incorrectly, like the way that my family tried to push sort of a conservative thing on me. And so in that sense, like I, there was just this idea of like, you have to believe in God. You have to believe in God. Like that's what it is. Like otherwise you're going to get punished, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of kind of adopting this, well, then I better do these things. It was more just like, uh, I'm going to be myself and whatever that is has to be okay with God as long as I'm going to continue to believe in that other thing. And my theology has changed over time. And um, obviously I'm not like, you know, I don't believe that like Christianity is, you know, the one true and only religion and everyone else is going to hell or anything like that. Um, but um, yeah, for some reason, I mean, even like as an adult, when I started writing about uh, trans and Christian transition and Christianity, a couple of times people were like, oh, write about like your struggles. And I was like, that, there just weren't. Um, and maybe it's also the fact that I just like didn't um, know queer people until I came out as queer. And so I just like wasn't, I knew they were in the closet. Um, I just never saw them be um, really mistreated by religious people until I sort of was already settled in my identity. Um, I don't know what sort of, um, there's a little bit that has some, like a little bit of almost survivor's remorse because I like, I don't know like what made it to where I didn't have this kind of struggle. Um, yeah. Um, I definitely want to ask you about, um, about, some of those um, the developments in your faith practices and and how how your faith has supported various transitions and I'm curious to ask about kind of New York City and some of the things I know you're involved in now. But before we get there, I just want to ask if there's anything that feels important. You mentioned studying abroad, and you and you mentioned kind of your time at um, at. Uh, UC Boulder. Yeah. Um, if there's anything from that feels really important to share, either as um, as just like pers like personal shifts or developments or important markers as far as your gender identity or your faith practices or your um, communities or things that you were involved in. Um. um. I didn't, um, you know, in general, I 
sort of continued to not have a lot of queer people in my life, um, which is very different from my life as it is now. And so I feel like I didn't... um, There was not a time period in which... uh, When I came out as trans, like, that was... Uh, or when I knew I was trans, I didn't come out for another 13 years. Um, but when I knew I was trans, there was a lot of, you went to the internet and found people. Um, and so like that, you know, people online who were um, trans, queer, mostly just trans, I didn't tend to look out, look for non-trans queer people. Um that was its own world and then in which religion wasn't discussed and then you know my like sort of um face-to-face life was a was a place in which religion was there um and queerness just didn't come up i had a group of um you know cishet men who are mostly my friends and i didn't even have i have one female friend who goes back to elementary school but apart from that i didn't really have female friends until i was in my 20s um friends of my partner's um and um yeah but i feel like um i um in when i was in boulder i was working for the universe i was working for the university that's not what i meant um i was working on tuesday nights we had this sort of like college ministry that was basically just a church service with all college students and i did the the sort of like slides the worshipy slides um, and I would chat with some of the other people who were, um, I don't know, who, uh, participated in that, um, other people and just kind of, um, chat with them about things, but none of them were queer so that, well, or they weren't out. And so it just kind of like didn't come up that piece, um. But I do remember at some point being really intrigued about when I first learned about orthodoxy. Um, in this case, Greek orthodoxy. Sort of when I when I was growing up, my family, um, when we talked about Christianity, I, I sort of, there was this familiarity, this, I, I guess, I don't know if somebody told me this or if I just like made it up or whatever, but there was this idea that Christianity composed two groups. There was Catholics and then there was everybody else. Um, which is uh, really inaccurate. Um, but that's kind of what I was told um, when there weren't... I wonder if there's there's an Orthodox church in Boulder. Um, I don't know if there's one in Lublin, excuse me. Um, and so I remember learning about the Orthodox church and uh, kind of wanting to go there, but also kind of not wanting to pop my head in a place that wasn't my place and be like, hey, I'm here to like see how y'all are different. Which is ironic because I'd also had never been to a Catholic church where I could have gone. There was many Catholic churches. Um, but just like that there was this whole tradition of Christianity that I was not aware of. Um, and then when I went to study abroad, which was my last semester in college, um, the person that I, we had... We lived in two-bedroom apartments, and there was two of us per room. So I had, like, a literal roommate who shared my room with me, um, Alex. That was the first name I used. Um, and he uh, he grew up Greek Orthodox. Um, and I remember uh, I was one of the few people um, 
and even in general, like in my social circle in Colorado, like I was one of like the few like token Christians in my in my group of people who had sort of become atheists um, or I don't want to say become uh, realize they were atheists. Um, and uh, so while we were studying abroad, I was like one of the like token Christian people in the in the, in the program and. Um, my roommate, one of the things that he really missed back home is you start to miss things when you study abroad. Um, was, Where were you? I was in the Czech Republic. Yeah, I was in Prague. Um, he sort of missed this um, this kind of church tradition. So he looked up, he tried to find a Greek Orthodox church and ended up finding a Czech Orthodox church. And he's like, will you go with me? And I was like, sure. And I went with him Um and it was a very different experience. Western Christi- or Eastern Christianity is very, very different from Western Christianity. Um, and I remember uh, going home and being like, that was like so incredibly different. And I went and I spent a bunch of time on Wikipedia and I learned that there was um, Hussite church, which is like a very sort of, they have a term for it, um, but it's like, protestant dish but it's very unique to the czech republic so i searched for a hasite church and i used my sort of google translate and whatever i could and i sought one out and i went there um and that was very different and then uh and then while after my study abroad ended i spent some time in france and in um italy and i learned that there was another uh valdisian church that was kind of like a, in this place where it's like Protestantism, but it also sort of harkens back to some things that existed before Luther. And so I ended up going to a Valdisian church on Christmas of 2011. I think that's right. Um, and just sort of being really curious about all these different expressions of Christianity. And then when I moved to New York, like five months later, um, I just sort of readopted that, and I was like, it's a new place, I don't have a church, like, let me explore this stuff. And I'd met my partner at the time, um, and we just sort of, ex- she was looking for a new church as well, we just sort of explored together. Um, and then she ended up going to seminary, and then I went with her to seminary, and then it was Union Where You Go, and it's like, this is just this very, like, liberal, queer-friendly seminary, and so then I ended up with sort of in my personal, you know, in my life up until this point, I had people who were not really queer and weren't really Christian, and then I ended up with people who were both. Um, and those are the people I gravitated to. Um, this is before I was even out, but sort of knowing that that was eventually coming. Um, yeah, and so in a sense, like, they they went together in a, in a way in which maybe other people would think that they don't. Mm-hmm because of maybe the luxury of a town of 10 million people. Um, yeah, I'm, I think you articulated it really clearly of, of kind of having, since uh, understanding for the first time at age 17 that you were trans, but that being a very kind of private, online-based personal kind of experience that was very separate from your um, public life, your public image, your religious life, and finally, you know, making your way to New York, 
however many years later, and specifically Union Theological Seminary, um, which is um, kind of uptown, um, right next to Riverside Church, um, finding those those two communities or those two identities, two ways of orienting towards other people and towards oneself, merging. Um, and I'm curious what um, I'm curious what brought you to New York City in the in the first place. Mm, that's interesting. Um, I do also want to say before we get into that that it's, it's and then I'll get back. But it's actually interesting because you were talking about a private life online. Um, when I was first learning, and we didn't have the world didn't have the resources that it does now, and we didn't have the research that we did. So at that time, um, well, this is so inaccurate. It's it's wild. Um, at that time, the numbers that I found said that people who are what we would now say AMAB, assigned male at birth, um, are trans one out of every 30,000 people. And AFAB people, they said one out of 100,000, which is absurdly inaccurate. Um, and I mean, even even the smallest that like I know way more AFAB trans people than AMAB trans people. Um, but I lived in a town of 60,000 people. And so it was like... Um, and then later when I went to college, it was 120,000. So it was like, what are the chances I'm going to find the other one person or the other three people? And so it wasn't even, um, it wasn't even, some of it was for sure hiding because of like, I had already, I tried to come out to my mom at 17, didn't go well. Um, so some of it was definitely self-preservation, but also like, I just assumed there just, there wasn't people I was going to find. Um, so what brought me to New York? I studied um, film in college, um, and I um, had a group of kids that I made films with even before I went to college. And then we're like, "Oh, let's all go to film school." And then I think only three of us ended up going, um, and one was several years younger than me, um, and so he didn't go until. Um, I was sort of already out, and he was sort of a friend of a friend, so we didn't really connect all that much. Um, and then my other friend went to San Francisco and ended up, I think he went for three years and didn't graduate, or two years and didn't graduate. Um, and so I went to film school. It took me a while. I didn't graduate until I was 27. Um, but uh, when I was done, um, I really had it sort of in my my plans to become some kind of filmmaker. And so my thoughts were uh, New York or Los Angeles. And one of my, there was um, another kid who had sort of a similar disposition to me. Um, you know, we're both sort of like shy, quiet, artsy people. Um, I know he was talking about, he had been talking to one of our professors about going to LA um, and that professor who maybe is biased because he's from here, he was like, you should really go to New York. And he was like, he was like, um, he's like, if you go to Los Angeles, he's like, people there will be mean and they'll be cutthroat um, in the film industry. And if you go to New York, like, they won't be. Um, particularly as an artsy person, like, it's easier to be the sort of like avant-garde artist here in New York than like L.A. Um, and as the kind of person who is also sort of um, quiet and artsy and those things like that made sense to me. And so I came and I visited two of my friends um, 
one who I knew from study abroad and one who I knew from college or from high school. Um, and uh, my one who I knew from high school was living in an apartment. He was just moving. He was living up uptown in um, Harlem and he was moving to Bushwick in Brooklyn. And um, they had an extra apartment that they couldn't get any, they couldn't keep roommates in there. So they're like, it's $425 a month or something. So he was like, move in with me. And I was like, that's cheaper than living in Boulder. So um, I went back home. I was working for the university while I was waiting for my study abroad credits to come in. And I was designing online classes. So I was like, can I just move to New York and continue to do that here? I had a six-month contract. And they're like, yeah. So that gave me, I came out here in May. So I had like two more months basically. And then that gave me time to find my job that we're in the office of right now. Even though we used to be at a different office. Um, yeah, and so I came here sort of to pursue film. And I'm, you know, I, it's not something that a lot of people I feel like uh, think about with my identity. But I'm, I work in the film industry here. And, you know, I got this job a couple months after I came here and stuff like that. Um, I just didn't, I'm not a director, producer, you know, camera, talent kind of person. Um yeah, that's what brought me here. Mm-hmm. So you've been working here for... Six years. For six years, yeah. Um, six and a half. Do you... Um, in addition to your day job, do you still make films? Do you, like, what is your what kind of creative practices? Do you... You know, I don't. I last made a film in... 2015, I think. Um, but I do a lot of writing. I um, When I was at some young age, um, when I was really young, I had no idea. Everybody's like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I have no idea. I remember one time in like fifth grade being told I like had to know because we had to draw it. So I just made something <laughs> up. I was like, I don't know. I'm just, so I just like lied. I was just like, I want to be a firefighter. But I really didn't. Um just like a lot of pressure to put on a student who's 10. Um, but um, I used to write a lot uh, in elementary school. And I remember just at some point being like, I think I would like to be a writer or just some sort of a storyteller. And I tried to write some fiction in high school. It was really difficult for me. Um, and um, film really worked in that space because um, uh, you couldn't, uh, basically I would be, I would write a sentence of a story and I'd be like, oh, that sentence is terrible. Let me like rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And you can't do that in film. You have to shoot and then you can't edit while you're shooting. And then when you're done shooting, you have to edit. You can't, can't edit while you're shooting. You can't shoot while you're editing most for the most part. Um, and uh, so, um, yeah, and then when I moved to New York, I feel like um, for a long time people would be like, "Oh, are you working on something?" And I'd be like, "No, I'm working really hard." And I, you know, worked on a few short films and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, I guess I worked in it less and less, and people would be like, "You know, are you working on anything?" And I would be like, "No, but I'm still looking." And then at some point, I noticed that people would be like, "You know, you'll find something." And I'd be like, thank you. And at some point it was just like, it doesn't matter if I don't. Mm. Um, And I feel like um, 
as an artist, like it's not, I feel like I was a pretty talented filmmaker and I feel like it's not talent. Uh, it's semi flippant, uh, flippant, but basically I would say at this point, like talent doesn't matter. Um, if you don't, um, if you don't sort of feel stressed when you're not working, um, and that was the thing is the further I got away from film, the easier it was to not make films. I didn't feel stressed. Um, whereas now in my writing, um, if a story comes into my, or not a story, because nonfiction now, um, but if something comes into my brain to write and I don't, it'll just bother me. And if I, um, if I don't take the time to sit and write it and it goes away and I know it's not going to be as good in the future, it sits with me. And it's like, why didn't you just do it when you had the chance? It doesn't matter if it's 2 a.m. or you're on the subway or you're in the bathroom or what you should have just done it. Um, and so I feel like um, in that sense, compulsion is way, way, way more important than talent. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds like your creative process or kind of what part of what sparks your creative process is being really connected to that intuition and to, um, yeah, you said compulsion, that kind of energy coming maybe from somewhere else, but pulling you to to do something, to have an outlet. Mm. Yeah, and, um, you know, eventually you get over a little bit of a hurdle. I used to do a lot of, um, I'd sort of this, like, personified muse character I'd write about. And it was like, if she comes, like, first of all, she's annoying because she just, like, flits in and is like, you need to write about this thing, like how being trans is like walking down, you know, how it's like a banana or something. And if I didn't, <laughs> if I didn't go, she would just like shut me off. And then I like would have no creative energy for like days. Um, and it was almost like I would personify it as like this punishment. It's like, if you don't, if you don't come when she wants you to, like, it's, or if you don't write when she comes, like it's gonna, um, it's just gonna be gone until like she has had time to, uh, kind of process that and, and forgive you and come back and try again. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so for a long time, I think, cause I'd spent so much time convincing myself that I couldn't write because fiction was not my thing. Um, I just had this sort of very like damaged relationship with this creative part of myself. Um, and, uh, you have to sort of build it up. Um, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but yeah, no, I, I um, it's uh, yeah, I'm interested in in the like why why we do what we do, and it's interesting to kind of get into the brain of a of a creative and be like, oh, it, it's it's actually a muse, and she's fickle, and she's demanding, and <laughs> she um, and. And I'm, yeah, it's interesting to hear kind of how you navigate that. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of, um, it's not as depressing as it sounds, but it feels like there's a lot of my creativity that comes out of this almost feeling of um, 
punishment or I've all, I've also said like in a certain sense that creative people um, are broken in that like if I go to write a story and my story is terrible and somebody's like, hey, that's like terrible, I should go like, you know what? <laughs> that's good advice. I won't try again. Um, but instead, like, it just like sits in there and they go, it's like, you can't stop. You got to keep going. You got to keep going. And like, uh, if you don't go, I'm going to like either punish you by taking away like your ability to write creatively for a while or, um, this kind of thing, but, um, this, uh, compulsion, I guess was the term I used earlier. It's just like, I can't escape it. Um, and I don't, I, I, part of that I think is that this, um, cause I went to a film school and I went to a very avant-garde artsy school and I got really sick of this idea of, um, the artist is like, a hero or is better than everyone else and they're like oh like you must have been given this like sp this spark of creativity and like you see the world like so much more beautifully and it's just like i don't think i do i think it, it's um it's it's almost uh the opposite it's like it stresses me out it's almost like uh I feel like most people think like you're you're like a neutral person and then if you're creative like that's even better but I feel like to me like it is nice when I write something and I connect with it or someone else connects with it but I feel like to me like you're neutral this way and then when you when a creative spark comes up it's actually negative it's like pushing it's like you have to do this thing now like um and so like you write in my case to like just be done with that it's like let me get these like thoughts out of my brain because one time i thought about writing something in elementary school and i didn't and now it's still with me 20 years later and i'm just like well maybe i should write that story even though i know it's terrible <laughs> and i'm like that doesn't even make sense but 10 year old me really liked it maybe someday i'll like get it out of there by sitting down and writing something so does um does writing feel or in what ways does writing feel like a spiritual practice or not like a spiritual practice? Um, that's a good question. Um, I feel like um, spirituality to me feels like uh, connection and logic, not logic. Um, but like, uh, um, that idea of being in flow or being in the zone, like when you're, when your religion is just like all this, like, uh, to me at least it's like, oh, like it's like, uh, epiphanies and like, oh, this thing makes sense and it relates to this thing and this is what God wants for us and, and all this beauty, whereas I feel like writing is um, oh man, what was I going to say? Um, something that was going to be really uh, revelatory, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Um, it's uh, it feels I want to say darker, but not in a depressing way. Um, 
there's a there's a lot of anxiety I have when I write about. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Sometimes I'll write something and I'll I'll be writing along about queerness, right? And I'll be like, I'll be like uh, a queer person of one or many or zero genders and one or many or zero sexualities may have a partner or partners. And I feel like a lot of people, there was a time in which one of my friends would be like, uh, like I was even talking to him at one point and I was like, I was like in the future, like with your partner or partners. And he was like, not Polly. And he's like, you don't have to be like that (laughs) inclusive about things. And now like I get props about, um, Okay. Um, now I get props about being sort of particularly inclusive about things. And people are like, wow, you always like make sure to like include. But to me, it's like, because if I don't, it's almost like, am I going to hurt this person? Um, and uh, yeah, and so it's just like, I don't want to not include, you know, a poly person or a person with a sexuality I don't have or an asexuality I don't have or... Um, I, I just don't want to not make space for them. And so I feel like there's a lot of, um, yeah, there can be a lot of anxiety. And also I think a lot of my writing, because of just the nature of it, a lot of it comes out of, excuse me, it comes out of frustration, and I use a lot of my writing as therapy, honestly. Um, something will happen to me, and then I'll like sit down and be like, what the fuck just happened? Like, ah, ah, ah. Um, and a lot of it is fueled by uh, anger and frustration. Um, particularly if it's sort of like long and something like that. Usually I do a lot of stuff that's just like silly and whatever. And that tends to be fleeting and short and um, pieces like that. But I think that the things that, people really connect with versus just like reading and going like, hee hee, um, often come out of a lot of like anger and sadness and, and hurt. Um, and uh, whereas religion just seems like it's so, comes out of a place of beauty and um, positive creativity and connection and, um, the world making sense and stuff like that. Um, I'm curious, um, tell me a little bit about what, um, uh, I'm I'm curious to hear about the trans Bible study at Judson and kind of how, where that idea came from, how it originated. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, Miles, who used to run it with me, um, he, um, when I moved up to Union, my partner, um, he was the first person on campus that, that she met. Um, and she came to me and was like, like, I met another trans person. Y'all should be friends. Um, and, uh, then also the, the woman who is now his wife used to be our next door neighbor. Um, so Miles was somebody I interacted with a lot. Um, and um, he texted me one day 
like less than a year or well, not more than a year ago now. Um, sometime in 2017. Um, and he was like, Hey, like, don't you go to like a Bible study for trans people? Can you give me the information on that? And I like wrote him back and I was like, I was like, I don't not. I mean, a thing like that does not exist as far as I know. And then he texted me back and he was like, Oh, he's like, we should create a thing like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we just gathered together and we were like, uh, what do we do? Um, so, um, for him, it was really important to have kind of a shared, uh, you know, a different person leads it every month and, um, it's not like Miles and Hannah like sit up and we have all the wisdom and all these things. Um, and for me, I just wanted it to be a place where it could be warm and inviting and there's good food and like um, food can be really so important in religious spaces and all spaces. Um, and uh, um, that there's not like a this is the right thing to believe. Um, and that also that we kind of took um, a lot of text at once. Um, you know, to me, one of the things I've really sort of grown to appreciate is like the narrativity of the Bible. Um, and I feel like there's all this stuff that we get taught that's just like one verse, one verse, one verse. Um, and we don't reflect like, what is the context of this verse? Um, I told I was talking earlier about David and Goliath, and one time I preached on David and Goliath, and um, my pastor was just like, "Let's preach on something we remember from childhood." So I was like, "I want David and Goliath," and I sat down. And it was like sixty verses long, and I was like, "Oh, I thought for sure it would be like five. Um, but like that's just a thing. There's like so much to that story that um, is not there, and so like that ability to really read a big chunk and what is the context and what does it actually say it was really important to me um and so um you know and then we discussed like do we want to um do we want to you know find like the most trans quote unquote like passages we can or do we want to just like gather a bunch of trans people and we'll bring the gender part of it and just like run it like any other Bible study. Um, and so generally we started out with just, we started with Psalm 139 about being stitched together in, in your mother's womb. Um, and um, sorry, I hesitate because it's not always just women's wombs. Um, and cause I feel like that would be a good place to start. And then um, we pretty much just let, and still to this day, we let whomever leads it, lead whatever they want um but there's been a couple times when i've it's really been important to me that there's a bunch of issues that are particularly if they're not talked about in the church and if we as trans people um the term we use is overrepresent. it's a term from where i work um if if something is more common to our community it doesn't even have to be something we personally experience um 
But if it's something that's more common to our community, that means that it's part of our culture as trans people. Um, and if, if that's coupled with something that's silenced in the church, then that's something that um, I really want to talk about someday. Um, though a lot of these are things I don't personally have experience with. Um, and I don't want to just like pick a person and be like, oh, you do this thing, like you have to lead on it. But you know, things like trans people are more likely to be asexual than cis people. We're more likely to be poly than cis people. Um, you know, uh, we're more likely to be neurodiverse than cis people. Um, you know, those things, even if we don't experience them personally, um, that is our culture. That is our community. Um, and um, those should be trans issues. Um, and if they're silenced in our discourse and they're silenced in our religious discourse, and that's the stuff we really need to dig into, I think. Um. I'm curious what other what kind of you mean some um, some topics so neurodiversity and sexuality what are some other topics that you have experienced or, or feel like get silenced by most church communities or, or what are some I'm also maybe a different way to ask that question is what kinds of what kinds of um, topics or issues do you sense people coming into the trans Bible study group wanting to talk about? Um, you know, I think that there's um, there some of the stuff that we've covered has been particularly um, like I remember when we announced that like it was going to be on asexuality that was the thing that the most cis people were like, can we come? Um, and it's, it's fascinating to, there's clearly a lot of cis people out there who are ace or ace questioning or somebody they know is ace. And that's just like not being addressed um, in a church setting to the point where, um, that seemed to intrigue more people than when we were talking about um, some of the other things we've talked about um, that you might think would be more interesting um, or get more questions. Um, I think that we've done a lot of, um, we've done a handful of non-canonical texts, um, which, uh, as somebody who grew up in a very like conservative religious tradition makes me nervous. It's better now, but it definitely made me nervous at first. Cause it was like, you know, like, what is this thing? It hasn't been approved by whomever. And the irony about the non-canonical text is like, um, you did thunder perfect mine. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been easier for me to have somebody say, we're going to look at uh, this speech by, um, you know, this famous person 
and we're going to study that as though as a religious text. Um, Sylvia Rivera, that's the term I was trying to come up with. Um, you know, the y'all better sit down. Like, we're going to read that, and then we're going to study that as a religious text. That would have been easier for me um, than a non-canonical text or a, um, something like that, just because that idea of being, like, on the edge of is it okay or not quotes okay um particularly early on made me really nervous and then this most recent bible study the subject was satan and that also made me nervous um and uh yeah there was even there's even a part where um leaving uh after we left our bible study or when we were sort of wrapping up um I was really nervous and I'd expressed to the person who led it about being nervous. And I was like, I don't feel any like additional desire to like worship Satan. <laughs> um, but for some reason, like I've been brought up to believe like that you shouldn't even touch that with a 10 foot pole. Um, and so, um, yeah, those pieces have been really interesting. Um, and uh, studying Thunder Perfect Mind has ended up being a lot of people's really favorite thing that we did. Um, and um, the other thing that I've noticed is there's a lot of um, there's a lot of traditions that um, come out of um, mostly like rabbinical Judaism um, that are really um, interesting and and I, there's no i don't want to there's already sort of an issue of christians like um well really like appropriating all kinds of cultures but particularly like claiming judaism um in a very problematic way um but um there's a lot of these like traditions that um excuse me, are really valuable in a, um, somebody who's not Jewish and only has sort of tenuous, but it feels like there's space for debate. Excuse me, whereas I feel like Christianity is the the search for the, um, the truthiest truth and everybody else must be wrong, which is maybe why it uh, really goes so well, hand in hand with like colonialism and white supremacy. Um... But, um, yeah, I find that there's this, there's this thing that keeps coming up of, like, how do we um, wrestle with unknowns and ask better questions and um, things like that. We did a study of the Perkea vote with uh, Labshul, which is a, um, like, artsy, progressive, queer-friendly uh, temple here, and they have a... Uh, TGNC group um, and we met with them um, and then we also we've been done this sort of a communion ritual that's uh, maybe what people consider to be what they would consider to be sacrilegious um, but um, uh, I, don't, I feel like there's something um about sitting with the sacrilegious 
And first of all, seeing that it doesn't have as much power as you might think. And what does it teach you? Um, particularly as, uh, as a community of people for whom many would consider us to be sacrilegious. Um, you know, and a destruction of God's plan for humanity and things like that. And so, like, we need to be able to sit with um, sacrilege and um, appreciate that part of a part of it because that's uh, that's our community as well, I guess, as far as um, finding things that we overrepresent for, as it were. I'm really. Um... Yeah, a couple things out of what you just said really kind of are sitting with me. One is you named Sylvia Rivera um, and a speech that she gave, and I'm interested in the ways that that trans people find other sources of scripture, um, whether or not they identify with a particular religion, that there's, that there's um, ways that we loop in other texts that serve spiritual or religious purpose. Um, and then the other thing that I, I think is really, um, really powerful about the, the trans Bible study, just from the couple of times that I went, is the fact that it is this um, like rotating facilitator, so rotating texts, rotating topics, different crew of people, um, and the ways in which you've described um, kind of coming up against moments of discomfort um, and being able to do a participate in a, in a conversation and then be like I'm never I never want to do that again and that's okay right to say maybe it's a process of finding finding where edges are mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I'm kind of curious if you could share a little bit about um why it feels important for you to for trans people to gather together and kind of how that space, what that space offers you that other um, church spaces don't, mm-hmm. um, and maybe also vice versa. Like, what what are some things that um, non trans specific religious spaces offer you that this kind of one at Jetson doesn't? Yeah, um, you know, I think that. Um... Um, I think that there's, there's this push to, in a lot of spaces that, um, the divine is a set thing and that there are ways that we, um, interact with the divine by come, by becoming that set thing. Right. So like, um, you say the right words and you do the right actions and then you engage with the divine. Um, and it so happens that the ways in which you engage with the divine are, uh, the ways in which those people who are in power, um, that it comes naturally to them. So it's almost like, uh, um, it's almost like this idea that like you as the trans person, you as the queer person, maybe even you as the woman have to uh, adapt to grab the divine. Whereas like, um, you know, like the cishet straight 
you know, um, white, you know, middle class, upper class person, it's easier for them. And so I feel like um, that that's, uh, yeah, and so like that that's blasphemy to me. And I feel like it's um, that idea of... Um, of having to, why is the divine or the things that are sanctioned as okay, like so much the things that are part of the hierarchy, like the the major culture, um, and so to claim and say like Sylvia Rivera is as much of a prophet as you know anybody else, um, you know is that ability to see the divine to see myself closer and the thing is is like it's not it wouldn't okay it might be controversial for some people but for the most part like in the average church it wouldn't be that controversial if you were going to study letter from a birmingham jail right um Which is yeah martin luther king. king um and um though it would probably be harder if you were going to study um, uh, why I'm against the war in Vietnam, which is also Martin Luther King, right? Because that hasn't, um, and I have a dream would be even easier because some of those things have um, been sort of uh, chosen because they fit the hierarchy, um, you know. And so, um, but Sylvia Rivera, like she, you know was a person who attended a church and she worked in their homeless ministry and all of these things. And she um, is the kind of person that a church should lift up. Um, and, um, but because of her being pushed away, um, we all get pushed away. And so I feel like there's this um, to just go in and claim like um, today there's a, there's a thing that's going on, on Facebook where people are writing down like um, being trans is not sinful, being trans is not haram, and like one of them is trans people are divine, and that's what I did, where it's just like that. Um, we don't have to adapt to the way that cis people behave or act to access the divine, even though a lot of people think that we do, because our gender identity has been given to us by God, and to deny that even so much as to deny it in the sense of, of um, passing as cis, it's going to be a little controversial, um, is, is blasphemy. You know, and I don't think that that means that passing in a normal sense is blasphemy. You're the, you know, the way you dress and express and all those things um, is, uh, is great. Um, but that idea that you must be this um, cis passing in a broader sense, be it like heterosexual in your new gender and of a binary gender and, um, you know, passing in a broader sense that you must be this good enough. I mean, you could also say um, respectability or whatever, respectability politics. You must be this respectable to access the divine, even though God gave you, created you with this intention. Um, then that's... Uh, and it's actually the opposite. That's doing things that separate you from the divine. It's blasphemy and sin. Um, and um, 
in a certain sense, when I talk about being sacrilegious, like, um, if I have to be more, uh, cis heteropatriarchal, uh, to fit into a system, then I'm actually being more sinful to be in that system. So if that's what the system says is good, then being blasphemous is actually what's, what's more divine. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's where you're getting at. Yeah, I think that's really... Um, uh, I think that's really powerful as a way to Again, I'm, I'm, again, I'm very struck by this kind of personal relationship to God and this faith in um, God's goodness and faith in, in the goodness of God's creation as a way that, that drives you to be able to kind of affirm who you are in all of your multiplicity and all of your, in um, all of the ways in which you diverge from kind of cultural norms. Um, I'm curious, are there, are there particular, are there particular rituals or texts or kind of practices, whether they're a part of a church community or kind of separate kind of personal things that you feel like have been particularly helpful or meaningful to you? Um, yeah, I find that, um, we have a thing at, at trans Bible study called this is my body communion, wherein, um, we, we put a, when we do it, we put this call out that we say, bring something that's, uh, feels sacred to you. And it can be sacred doesn't have to mean, um, something really big. It could be, we've had some of them have been incredibly big. Like this is something that, you know, a food that my family made that showed me that they loved me and it was the first time they respected me and that leads to about gender and like that little piece of respect. And some, you know, so some of them are incredibly deep and some are just like, you know, this is my favorite candy bar and like it's always around. Um, sacred doesn't have to necessarily be big. Um, but we just all bring something Um and uh, we offer it up with um, why we brought it. Um, and with this kind of idea of, we say, like, this is my body, which is sort of, you know, like from the communion um, liturgy, a standard communion liturgy. And it's that idea of, like, to me, I, I've often brought it up to people about, like, there are... Um, things that we know were like at the communion meal, but almost like, or not almost, also is there possible things that we didn't know? And maybe it was there. Maybe there was a Snickers bar there. Who do we know? Much the way that like we as trans people have been sort of stripped out of this story. Um, there could be other things that are stripped out of the story too. And so it's just like taking this piece that is something that relates to me being sacred and saying this needs to be here with um, this sacred space in which we um, access the divine as it were. Um, but also I find that, um, being with people, um, listening to people, um, for as much as like, um, that, uh, 
the pieces I have that I find sacredness in, in my transness and my queerness, it's also very important for me to remember, like, I, um, I am white and I am binary, and those two things come with a um, come out of a history of colonialism, and um, it's it can be dangerous for uh, people in power, particularly white people. Um, to um, take the stories of the Bible and um, appropriate uh, being the subjects, whereas like for a lot of it, it's like no, we should be the we should recognize ourselves as the the colonizers, as the occupiers, as the whatever. Um, and so, like, um, I just wanted to say, like, it's important to in that. My being trans, queer, female does not negate uh, my racial experience, my neurotypical experience, etc. Um, ways in which I hold power, which I hold pretty significant power. Um, but I think that to be with people and listen to them and listen to their experiences, um, that, I mean, what I talked about earlier in in Colorado of like everybody was like me, but there was pieces in which I was different. That ability to be in places where not everybody is like you. Um, I tend to like to think of um, everybody as having like a little piece of God. Um, And uh, um, the more that we can be with them, um, the more that um, these pieces can kind of gather together. I thought there's a story of the tower of Babel in Genesis, I think. And the traditional story of the Tower of Babel is like these people gather together and they're like, let's build a big tower up to God. And then if we can get as high as God, we can be God-like. Um, and then God is like, well, humans can't be God-like we, uh, we have to punish them. So they, God punishes them by scattering them across the world and giving them different languages and whatever. But I tend to, when I think of the story of the Tower of Babel, um, I almost wonder if God looks at the people and instead of like punishing them is actually trying to help them and says like humans in whatever this primordial state is, um, there, they cannot be like me because I am beyond what any like human can understand. But if I give them all these different types of experiences, different languages, different origins, different, cultures different whatever and i spread them across the world and if they're still able to come together and work together to build a tower up to the sky then they'll have been able to achieve um this sort of divinity and so i kind of like that idea better of like um this is a way for god to um this this uh, coming together and recognizing differences and the power of differences as opposed to some this is the ideal way to be as um, a way that we connect with the sacred. Yeah, I really love how unlike so many dogmatic traditions, be they Christian or otherwise, that what you just described is is a, is a way of, of interpreting Bible and interpreting tradition in a way that makes 
space for and celebrates the divinity of trans people and the sacredness of trans experience and trans community, but without sugarcoating that or without kind of lifting up to some sort of superior kind of place, but to continue to have that reflection about your other axes of of privilege and oppression and kind of look then also in your sacred texts and in those traditions and in Christianity's long history of colonialism and and be able to hold both of those things within your tradition and within your practices. Um, and I, I love your kind of your way of looking at the Tower of Babel story. Um, I'm curious um, before before you wrap up, is there anything else that you that you want to share? Hmm. I don't. That's a good question. I don't know. Um. Whether that's I can give um, whether there's something from any of the pieces um, of your of your story that you feel like we've missed out on, or you want to elaborate, or um, maybe uh, parting words or parting prayer for other trans folks or other cis folks who might be listening? Um, About how to to sustain um, a multifaceted but compassionate relationship with God. Um, It's interesting. For me, um, religiosity and trans experience um, really fit on us on a very similar plane in that like both are um, something that just like my gendered experience and my faith experience are just something that I can't explain but just like it's just a thing like I, it's like I know this is a thing that's happening and not to negate people of other or no faith experiences or other or no genders um but just like for me that there's like so much truth in this piece. Um, and, um, you know, I don't, um, it's not my intent to, uh, yeah, like I don't, I wouldn't want people to assume that there has to be some kind of, you know, religiosity to, to find any sort of great truth. Um, it's just a thing that works for me. Um, but um, I think that it's important for people to recognize um, uh, that they are um, that they are sacred, that they can be subjects of things. Um, they don't have to necessarily relate to... Um, they don't have to become like cis people, like street people, um, to, um, to be sacred and that there needs to be sacredness. They can find sacredness in themselves, but also other people, it would behoove them if they are in a quest for the sacred, um, 
to find where that sacredness is also um, to become there. Um, there's a, I wish I had words for it, which is ironic. I just read a book, uh, I just finished it today by Monica Joy Cross, who's a um, black transgender pastor um, in uh, the Bay Area, I think, somewhere in California. And she's from the same tradition that I am. She's a disciple. Um, or, well, she's, she grew up AME, but she pastors a disciples church. Um, and um, for her, um, she uses this term, I don't remember what it is, but it's basically like difference, difference, the difference is the divine. That's where you find it. And in trying to become all the same, um, then we're sort of denying the divine. Um, and she says that this idea of um, white supremacy particularly is trying to push everyone to be the same thing and that actually we find the sacredness in difference. Um, be it differences in ourself, differences with other people, um, differences... Uh, from the sort of mainstream line of culture. Um, and uh, I think that um, there is sacredness or power or whatever you want to call it, just like in whom we are and to be able to like find it stationed in yourself. Um, and that which is sort of inborn in you and like in the way that God created you um, or that you were created outside of some kind of divine, but there's still power there. Does that work? I don't know. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, well, I just want to thank you so much again for taking time and energy. And yeah. um, it's always such an honor to be able to witness other people sharing their stories and um, getting an opportunity to think think differently through um, through the topics of gender and faith and spirituality so thank you yeah you're welcome yeah.